Good morning. If you're visiting, welcome to Harvest Bible Church. My name's Lance Waldy. I get to be the pastor here, at least for now. Great privilege that it is. We have been uh, looking at the Gospel of Luke for the past year or so. We're in chapter 13, as the reading just showed you. The context begins where I ended last week, uh, overlapping a bit, in chapter 3, verse 18, where Jesus gives two parables of the kingdom. The kingdom. What is the kingdom of heaven like, or the kingdom of God like? Matthew says kingdom of heaven. Luke says kingdom of God. They're the same thing. He speaks in verse 18, so what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, very tiny seed. Could be confused with a, a speck of dirt. It's like this. It starts off small, which a man took and threw into his own garden, and it grew and became a tree, large enough that the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It's like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. Fifty pounds of dough and a small little speck of leaven permeates the entire batch. It's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like dough. <laughs> it's like a mustard tree. How does that help us? It tells us that it starts small. It's a small thing. Jesus was a, as a man, a small man in a small part of the world in a small little city, a little speck. Uh, it, from the standpoint, obviously he's God in flesh, so I don't mean to demean our Lord Jesus, but it was small. The word was small. It started small. But the kingdom of God, even though it's small, is here. When he came here, that's when the kingdom began here. Now, don't get me wrong, I don't think the kingdom of God is here in its fullest form, but it's here. It starts small, it grows, and when he comes again, when he returns, the kingdom of God will be at its greatest, the fullness of the kingdom of God. It starts small, it began small, it's growing, it's growing in us, who are believers in Jesus as the Christ. At this point, someone asked him in verse 22, at least the last in verse 23, but in verse 22, the, the narrator tells us, Luke tells us, he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? Does Jesus know what's going to happen in Jerusalem? Look over at chapter 9, verse 22. We haven't heard that Jesus was headed to Jerusalem since chapter 9, verse 51. But in 9.22, Jesus tells us he knows exactly what's going to happen to him, calling himself the Son of Man. In chapter 9, verse 22, he tells the disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. Why would he go? If he knows that's what's going to happen in Jerusalem, why is he going? Because he must. Jesus didn't, wasn't born to give us an example of, of good behavior, to deliver us from unfulfillment or low self-esteem. Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh. God took on flesh. He is God. And He came to live our lives and to die this death. Why? Because what is the wages of sin? Death. Are we all sinners? Of course we are. Do you need the Bible to tell you that you're a sinner? All of sin falls short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. The most useless passage in all of the Bible. I know that sounds blasphemous, doesn't it? I didn't like saying it. It tasted bad coming out of my mouth. But you get the point. Like we need to be told that. I guess some do. We are all sinners. And the wages of our sin is death, Romans 6, 23. Jesus is God in flesh who came to live the life that we 
cannot live because we're sinners and to die the death that pays the penalty for our sin. And that's where he's going. In Luke chapter 13, verse 22, that's what it says he's doing. He's passing through city to city, village, one village to another. He's teaching, making use of his time, and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem where he will be arrested by the elders, the, which is the religious leaders of the day. He's going to be tried in a kangaroo court. He knows it. He's going to be beaten, tortured. He knows it. Nailed to a cross. He's going to die. He knows it where he will also be resurrected to eternal life in this glorified state, setting the, the, the foundation for salvation, granting those with faith from the Old Testament who had faith to be saved, granting that they had atonement for their sins provided, and granting all of us who live afterward atonement for our sins in hindsight. That's what he's doing. And having just talked about the kingdom being small, starting off small, and Jesus, you know, walking around the countryside, he's God in flesh. You'd think he'd have a huge following, and he does. There's lots of people in this crowd. We've surmised over 30,000 people in this crowd. 30,000. The crowds are large, but they're not all believers. Most people just want to get in there and touch Jesus and have something good happen to them. People then wanted from Jesus what people want now from Jesus. That's what... Their needs fulfilled. What can we get from Jesus? You ever notice that about modern Christianity? Christianity is sold as, as some sort of a, a religion where you get whatever you want. Pray in Jesus' name, get whatever you want. That's not what Jesus came to give. In fact, we don't get often what we want because what we want is sinful. And because of this, and because Jesus tells people that they're sinners... He condemns sins because what we've seen at this point is that he heals people on the Sabbath day, which flies in the face of the traditions of the elders and the religious leaders. He teaches things they couldn't teach. He has authority they don't have, and people love him. They hate him. So his crowds, his followers, at least the ones that are really with him, are small. Now, what do we think about small churches in our modern day? What do we think about people, candidates who are, who are um, running for office? They have a, a small group of people. They're insignificant to us. You must be a loser if you only have that many people voting for you. You must not be doing the right things if your church is not 10,000 or 5,000 or 1,000 people. Small church, yeah, they're, they're small time. That's what they said about Jesus. And so someone asked from the crowd in verse 23, someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few being saved? It sure looks like it. You don't have that many followers. Not that many people believe. The religious leaders reject you as you reject them. Are there just a few being saved? You'll note that previously in chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus referred to his followers as little flock. We looked at that, little flock, calling them sheep and a tiny group of them, little flock. The religionists rejected Jesus. What he had done previously in chapter 11 um, was relegated as the work of Satan. Jesus cast out a demon. They're going, ah, that's the work of the devil. He's casting out devils by the power of the devil. They called him Beelzebub. Others didn't like Jesus because he did not meet their messianic expectations. He wasn't David. He wasn't Moses. He didn't come with great power and strength to rid the Romans or I should say, chase the Romans out of Israel. It's always been small. Even in the Old Testament, you don't find large groups of Jewish believers. 
They're small. It's, in fact, the Old Testament calls them a remnant. A remnant. Only the remnant will be saved. Even though Isaiah says the, the people of Israel are like the sand of the sea, only the remnant is saved. A small portion. Are there just a few, we might say, are there just a few that are going to be saved, Lord? I had a lady, a very well-known woman that's in the news a lot today, and she was uh, um, arguing with me and my friend Doug McCary, who preached here recently, and she was saying, you guys, you, you got problems. He said, you think the population of heaven's going to be very small. I think it's going to be large. And I said, large, yeah, it's going to be large with a lot of people, but comparatively speaking, what do you do with Jesus saying the road is narrow and few there are that find it in, Roman, in Matthew chapter 7? That shut her up. Which was good. <laughs> if Jesus says there's few, comparatively speaking, that are going to be saved, how can we say any different? How can we go off and say, no, I don't believe that. I believe it's going to be a huge population. Huge population, I guess it depends on what you, what you think is a huge population. But whatever the population is of heaven, compared to all the people that have ever been born, it's quite small. Will there be few saved? Jesus does not answer the question directly. It says, and he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Notice what he doesn't say. No, no, there'll be billions and billions. He doesn't say, no, everyone is going to be saved because I am a God of love. Note that he does not say that. And isn't that what's being preached today? If Jesus never says it, and in fact says the exact opposite, we should take note. Notice what else he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and, and he, he began to say to them, or he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. <laughs> he doesn't say, just believe in me and you're in. He could have. I'm here. Just believe in me. Could have said that here. Incidentally, the Jews, probably a Jew asking him, Jews believed that they were all in. They were God's people. They all believed. In fact, their, their rabbis taught them all Jews are saved. The only ones that would be excluded from heaven out of the Jewish race would be people like um, uh, Korah. Remember Korah's rebellion in uh, the book of, of Numbers, chapter 15? Really? Who am I talking to here? <laughs> People like Korah who, who rebelled against Moses or people like Absalom who rebelled against his father David. Uh, and certainly the Jews who had become uh, employees of Rome, tax collectors in Rome. Otherwise, all Jews were saved. We're, we're Jews. Of course we'll be saved. Jesus doesn't say that. He doesn't say, oh, don't worry. All you from, from Abraham's loins, you're in. You know that. He doesn't say that. Jews would have believed that there were some Gentiles, a very few amount of Gentiles. Rahab, the prostitute. How would you like that to be your surname? Or the harlot. That's what she was. We read about her in the book of Joshua. And she's in the genealogy of the Christ. Ruth was a Moabitess outside of Israel. She too is in the genealogy of the Christ. So Jews had to admit, well, there's some Gentiles are going to be there, but it's all Jews and just a few Gentiles. And that's what they believed. But Jesus tells them something that is so against not only what they thought, but what we think today. 
The answer to the question is not, yeah, there's a few, there's much. It's just, verse 24, strive to enter through the narrow door. The word strive is a Greek word. Uh, It's agonizomai. Do you think you know what the English word that comes from that is? Agony. Agony? Wait a minute. Agonize? The word speaks of battle, war, struggle. When's the last time the gospel was presented to you that way? Strive with great agony and struggle. Go through the narrow door. So imagine, there's, you're walking in a theme park. I don't know why a theme park comes to mind. And there's a big, huge... I mean, I've been to Disney World a couple times. Won't go back, but I've been there. It was a lot of fun when it was, but uh, a little too risky nowadays. But there's these huge door openings and you go through, and there's all kinds of fun and music to be seen. Let's go there. That's one option. Over here, off the beaten path, there's a hole in the ground, and there's some mud around it, and it's just a tiny, narrow opening, and you've got to crawl through it and maybe on the other side, there's something really cool. Which one are you going to take? Especially if you're a little older like me. Some of you are even older than me. All right, there, I got to get down on my knees. I got to crawl through a narrow space. I'm a little cross claustrophobic. That place over there looks a lot more fun, simpler to get through. Broadway, narrow way. Now, is Jesus saying here in some strange way that contradicts everything else in the New Testament that the door of salvation is somehow something you have to work to get through? Well, we know that salvation comes by God's grace, yes? So in other words, it's only allowable because God says it's allowable, His grace. We know from the rest of Scripture that the only way to engage that grace is through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not faith alone, it's the object of our faith alone, Jesus. Just faith in just Jesus. Lots of people have faith. If you're an evolutionist, you have faith. If you're an atheist, you have faith. That faith doesn't save you, though. Faith alone in Christ alone is our way of salvation. Faith alone. Doesn't say faith plus works. Yet Jesus here is saying strive, struggle to enter through that narrow door. What do you think he's talking about? You're dying for me to tell you, aren't you? Or at least what I think. So let me go back. Chapter 9, verse 23. Here's what Jesus says. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must walk to the front of the church, tell people he loves Jesus, and get baptized. (laughs) Chapter 9, verse 23. Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Get down on your knees, crawl into that hole, work your way through it until you get to the other side. What? Deny himself? I like myself. Myself is number one in my life. I'm number one. Deny myself? Take up my cross? Drag a cross, a burden? And follow me? I'm following me, Lord. I thought I could just love you. In verse 24, Jesus continues, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Loses his life, that's striving. It's about giving something up. It's not going through the easy way. It's saying, I'm going to deny me. It's a decision to make. It's a difficult decision to make, turning from unbelief to belief. I don't believe. I'm going to believe. I'm going to go get and crawl through that muddy hole versus going through that big, huge opening because I'm told that's the better way. Faith in Christ costs us. It costs the selfish sinner our goals and our desires. I want to do this. I want to feel that. It costs something to follow Jesus. It costs you giving it up, us giving up what we want. It may separate us from our own families to follow Christ. That's agony. It's about self-denial. Luke 14, 26 says that about his family. We'll look at that when we get to chapter 14. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 22 says it's about giving up our wealth. And John chapter 12, verse 25 speaks of giving up our own life, even to death. That's what it means. We looked at chapter 12, verse 40, where, where Jesus said, Be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. Do I want to do what I want to do? Or do I want to be on the ready for the imminent return of our Lord? One is easy, one takes work. We saw in chapter 12, verse 58, that on your way, when you owe someone money, he uses the example, negotiate a peace deal before you get to the magistrate, before you get to the judge who will find you guilty and turn you over to the jailer where you will never get out. He's saying, You were at odds with God today. Right now, if you're a sinner, you were born at odds with God. You were born an enemy of God. Doesn't sound like the way we were taught, and yet it's true. The wrath of God is on us the day we're born, the day we're conceived in mama's womb. The wrath of God. Why else do you think a baby would die? What is the wages of sin? Death. A baby dies, they never did anything. Oh, yes, they did. They were born in sin. That's how horrible sin is. It brings death. God says, while you're still alive, while you draw a breath, negotiate your peace deal with God. Here's the beauty of it. It's already been had. The peace deal's already been brokered. Jesus is God who became flesh, who paid the price for our sin, lived our life, died our death. How can I get in on this peace deal? I'm glad you asked. Receive him by faith. Well, then why does he say strive to enter? Because negotiating that peace deal means denying yourself. It means swallowing pride. It's about getting right with God. Jesus doesn't say, okay, like your modern evangelists, just say, I love you, Lord. Just pray this prayer. How many of you did that? When you supposedly came to Christ, someone gave you a pre-made prayer, you read the words and said, I'm in. Jesus never says that. You ever talk to somebody and they said, yeah, I prayed the prayer. Always get that weird, sarcastic, quizzical look on your face and go, what prayer are you talking about? What, where is that prayer in Scripture? That's a made-up prayer that somebody gave you to pray. Now, if you mean it, okay. 
No one's ever told me, okay, here's what you tell your wife. Go tell her this, this, and this. Here, read this and your wife will love you. Here, wife, you are beautiful. I love you. I will always be with you. What woman ever fell for that? Too many. (laughs) The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, 9, having now been justified by Jesus' blood, which is his death, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Jesus. What's our problem? Wrath of God. Not the wrath of the devil. The wrath of God is on us. Negotiate that peace deal by receiving Jesus. That striving, agonizomai, to enter through. Salvation here is called the narrow door. It's not broad, it's narrow. You have to work your way in to fit through. Maybe shed some clothing, maybe shed some pounds to get through. It's a struggle. Salvation is not only a struggle to get and attain, but to maintain. Being a Christian is not easy. If anyone ever told you it was, they lied to you. Or they don't know. How many of you who are Christians who walk the walk could say that? Yes, it's difficult. It's difficult to stay the course. It's difficult to stay on path. When I know what I would rather do, what I really want, and what I want to say, to stay on course. It's not a dread. It's just agony. It's a struggle. And that's what he tells them. Are there few in? Here's what Jesus says. You strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. As I said, salvation is by grace throughout the Bible. We read about it. We see that we are born dead not physically dead. We were born spiritually dead. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we were, we were made alive by Christ. Those who are dead in their sins can only be saved by God's grace. When God makes us alive, He brings us back to life. We're not laying on, on uh, some place dead going, Lord, will you save me? Why do we love God? 1 John four nineteen. Why do we love Him? Because He first loved us. We don't love him because we have any good love and we heard something good and say, I think I'll love this God. We only love him because he loved us first. He made us alive in Christ. Isn't that awesome? See, that's when you're supposed to say, amen. We know from John 6, Jesus himself says this, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him to me. Not woos him. Not pats his leg like we do our dogs and say, come, come here, boy. Draws him, drags him in. No one can come to Jesus, God the Son, unless God the Father has drawn that person to God the Son. Isn't that awesome? We're dead. He draws us. Acts 13, 48. No one can come to faith in Christ unless they were appointed to believe in the first place. Acts 13, 48 appointed, drawn, predestined. The grace of God is in this most amazing doctrine. Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, Jesus says, no one can know the Father except those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus chooses those whom He would, will reveal who the God the Father is. 
This is salvation. And yet Jesus says, for those who have this, strive. You're not just in. Oh, I'm, I'm elect. I was predestined. God loved me. It was easy. I just came to know Jesus one day. No. Ain't the way it works. Certainly not the way Jesus says it. When he says, not many, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. Why didn't he say, for a few will, will seek to enter? Just a few outlandish people like, you know, Joseph Stalin and uh, um, people of his nature, Adolf Hitler. He doesn't. He says, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Back in uh, chapter 13, uh, when, or chapter 12, when Jesus is talking about the, uh, um, the parable of the the rich guy. He said, I'll knock all these down. I'll build bigger barns, put all my stuff in there, and then I'll eat, drink, and be merry. He didn't know he was going to die that night. You see, when you die, that's the day the door is shut. If you haven't negotiated your peace deal with God by receiving Christ up to that point, the door is shut. There is no amount of begging and pleading after you die on that proverbial door, talking to the person on the other side, Look at the way it unfolds. Many will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. So you die. Let's say you're a regular member of Harvest Bible Church. Regular attender. Uh, those of you who are members have turned into testimony and you have revealed your understanding of salvation. And we assume that as members, uh, you, you truly know what, it, know what it means to know Christ. But let's just say you're an attender. You don't like to turn the testimony and you don't be a member. That's okay. Uh, it's not a demand of us. It's a request. We'd like for that. But uh, um, you come to church and you know that the people of Harvest Bible Church are good God-fearing people. They're not perfect. You know that. Good God-fearing people, and, and you bring your Bible, and you give a little bit of money, and uh, maybe a little bit of time, and you die. And you find yourself outside the proverbial pearly gates, behind the door. The door's been shut. You know who the person is on the other side, according to Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23? Well, it's Jesus. It's not named here in Luke, but he's, he's the guy. He's the one that negotiated the peace deal. Yes, from the other side. <clears throat> there seems to have been a mistake, sir. Lord, open up to us. Verse 26, you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. Lord, we came and heard you preach. You remember that time at that banquet? We ate with you. We, we were talking football, man. We had a relationship, a connection. You knew me, liked me, I liked you. Oh, yeah. Must have made a mistake. Come on in. No. He will tell you. Say there in verse 27, I do not know. Second time he says it. I do not know where you're from. In other words, you can be familiar with Jesus all you want. You can read the Bible and say, hey, Jesus, he's the man. You can respect the tenets of your faith. Jump through all the hoops you want to. But unless you have a relationship with Jesus, you are not getting through that door. That relationship with Jesus, that striving, I think comes down to one word. It's repent. 
That's what he just said in chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 3. Look at that. I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance. That's the agonizomai. That's the agony. I have to say no to what I want and yes to what God requires of me. To what is the, the glory of God. It could come down to just, I really hate to convict all of us on this one, but since I'm in the midst of this conviction, I have to tell you too. It could come down to to food. How many of you struggle with food? You know, I look at myself and I just kind of, the the finger sinks in a little too far, sorry. Just a little too much Dunlap uh, over the belt. I want to be thin. I want to see the six-pack. Don't you? I mean, in you, not me. But how much do you want it compared to what you're eating? That salsa chips looks awfully good. The six-pack is no longer being thought about. I'm sorry. Six-pack salsa, six-pack salsa, 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 salsa. And so we have this little striving with ourselves. What we want, what we know is better, we just keep putting off. We don't do. Move that over to a much higher plane. The things that you want to do, that you want to be. I want to be someone who knows God's Word. I want to be someone who lives God's Word. I want to be a light in this dark world. Perhaps I want to be a teacher to teach God's Word. I want to be a great evangelist to announce God's Word. I want to be a a man who other men look to and say, I want to be a, a, a husband like that guy or a wife like that woman. Do you? Because how much effort you put into it really tells how much you really want to do it. The same is true spiritually. If Jesus is telling us to strive, strive to enter it. Because one day that door is closed and you're going to have to answer for why you didn't strive to get in. The answer on the other side is, I don't know you. Maybe, maybe another question comes from the other side that, or just a comment that says, I've got one question for you. False friend, did you ever repent? What? Yes, repent. Turn from your wicked ways to follow me and have a relationship with me. The answer's got to be no, because no one on the outside of that door has failed to repent. No one on the inside of that door has failed to repent, I should say. Totally different. From this, you can see the horror on their faces. They don't quite understand the surprise and horror. I don't know where you're from. Verse 26 again, they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence. You taught in our streets. In other words, a familiarity with Jesus doesn't save anyone. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you're from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. He doesn't say, you, you middle of the roaders. He calls them evildoers, people that ate with Jesus, people that did not find Jesus offensive per se. Just people that didn't receive him. People that didn't want a relationship with him. Kept their distance from him. Is that you? A lot of people do that. They just keep their distance from Jesus. We try to give at Harvest Bible Church, I do, as a teacher and pastor, as much of Jesus as I possibly can give you in one hour. And I I preach for an hour for a reason. One hour. Just one hour out of your week. Every bit I can get into one hour, I give to you. I know it's offensive. 
But Jesus was offensive. He didn't back down from anything. I want to give you every nugget of truth and every exhortation that I am capable of giving. There are better teachers that have better exhortation. I know it. I listen to them. And I want, I want to be like them. But I give you everything I can from God's Word to make this. And I see some of you just keeping Jesus at arm's length. You're not going to get involved. You're not going to give your money. You're not going to give your time. You're not going to read the Bible. You're just going to keep finding dumb excuses to not do it. I know I sound like a parent. It's my job. I love you enough. I'm pleading with you. This is the time where you negotiate the deal. You can't wait until you die, and you don't know when you're going to die. I plead with you. The population of hell is filled with people who just simply kept Jesus at arm's distance. They're called evildoers. Evildoers. We, we relegate Joseph Stalin types as evildoers, not people who liked Jesus, who thought he was a cool dude. Hipster preachers that will not teach you the truth, yet their churches are filled with thousands upon thousands of people with their huge music shows. These are the populants of hell. Isn't that sobering? No striving to enter through the narrow door. These preachers preach the Broadway church of Jesus Christ. The false gospel. God loves everyone. Come on in. He loves everybody. He's so full of love. You ever heard this phrase? He's so in love with you. I doubt it. God loves us because he chooses to love us. There's nothing lovable about us. Some of you are offended by that, but it's true. Ask yourself, what in the world could God possibly love about me? Oh, I'm a nice person. No, you're not. Nice is a, an absolute farce. Nice is a, is a facade we put on to try to cover how rude and wicked we really are. We want to say what we want to say, but we cover it with niceties. We want to be kind. We want the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, and we're struggling against the rottenness of our soul to let it come out. Evildoers. Oh, we know the, popul- the population of hell will be filled with evil people. But it's going to be filled with a lot of people that went to church every Sunday. It's going to be filled with a lot of people who gave to the church. A lot of people who, who said nice things and were just what we would consider good people. It's filled with those. Because why? They had no relationship with Jesus. He was not their Lord. Certainly not their Savior. They bowed never, they never bowed to him. And I would say this, I was telling someone on the phone the other day, our kids, our youth, I think they, they're at a great advantage of hearing the gospel in the youth group at this church. It begins in the children's ministry. And when they come in here, they hear it again. But the strange thing is not many of our youth come back from college or a few years later. I just leave it there. They even come back. Very few come back as, as on-fire Christians when they were when they were 16, begging me to baptize them. They punted their faith. They're done with it. They learned other things. And I would say this, the preaching that we give them here through Doug, through the people that work in the, in the youth department, the children's department, we are preparing these people to be the greatest apostates ever because they're hearing the truth face-to-face. No holds barred. They know it. 
So when they come back after ignoring it, they are all the more responsible. That's what hell is filled with. That doesn't mean we should stop doing that. We must keep doing that. We don't make Christians here by teaching a more in-depth doctrine, perhaps, than other churches. We just make people, um, we make their eternity in hell a little bit hotter than the rest. That's sobering. What I'm saying, folks, is the truth is right here. It's in front of you. You're hearing it. If you're still here and you're looking at me and your ears are taking this in, believe in Christ. Now, negotiate your peace deal. If you say you've already done it, go back and evaluate it. That can't hurt. In what way, Lord, do I strive? Did I strive to get in? What way do I strive to remain on that narrow road? How many of you have read Pilgrim's Progress? Okay, we're going to start up the men's Bible study again here in August, September, and we're going to go through Pilgrim's Progress. The whole point of Pilgrim's Progress, it's an allegory that John Bunyan wrote in the 1600s about a man named Christian who is making his way from this place where he has a burden on his back, his sin, and he's trying to make it to the celestial gate. He's on his way. He is striving to enter the narrow door. And every place along the way is there to tell him, no, come on over here. No, do this. Believe that. Say this. Say that. It's an allegory, and it puts everything about the life of a Christian in perspective. Puts it into this great allegory. Striving to get to that narrow gate is not just a one-time, I'm in, I want to be saved, get me baptized. If you grew up in the Baptist church like I did, that's what it was. I'm in. I'm one saved, always saved. That's what they told me. I got dunked. I had my Polaroid up on the wall. I must be saved. No, no. The first part about coming to Christ is to know what you're saved from. If you don't know what sin is, why do you think I tell you you're wretched sinners? If you don't get sin, you're not even under, you'll never understand what salvation is. To be saved from what? Most people think that even if they understand sin, they don't think it's a big deal. Well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as Joe over there or Jan over there. I'm pretty good. People think they're good. How? How can anyone think they're good? What goodness we're doing, what good we're doing is just a facade to cover who we really are. Am I the only one that thinks this? I did a funeral yesterday for my aunt. It's just, I, I, I love to do those because to go into some of the churches and, and give that gospel, the people are dumbfounded by it. And people are not used to being called sinners. Before I stepped into the pulpit of this church, um, I talked to the pastor and got permission from him, as, as I would require any pastor that took this pulpit. And I would say, you know, okay, tell me who you are. What do you believe? My main question is I'm going to say, what do you think about Jesus? Tell me about Jesus. And you're not going to step into the pulpit here unless you tell me about Jesus. This guy asked me the following. A pastor. I don't know, KK, I think you told him I was a pastor, your pastor. This is his question to me. If you died today, do you know for sure you'd go to heaven? Really? That's the question you're going to ask. That's all you know to ask. Yes, I know. Can I tell you a little bit more, please? Well, I just need to know. just needed to know that. that that's, that's all, really? To allow some guy you don't know to step into your pulpit, all I have to do is say yes? This is the, 
the romper room Christianity that's out there. For those of you who don't remember romper room, <laughs> it was just a child's show. Evildoers. Evildoers who don't know enough to be saved and yet who are walking around thinking they do. Where do these evildoers go? Verse 28. In that place. Because they're not coming through the door. There's only other one place they can go to. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. I know what it is to weep. I've never gnashed teeth. But I've seen animals do it. Have you? You ever come across a dog? They bear their teeth. I've seen wolves in movies gnash their teeth. Imagine a human doing that. There's a movie, uh, I Am Legend. I don't necessarily recommend it. I have learned in 23 years of being a pastor, never recommend a movie unless it's Chariots of Fire. But uh, I Am Legend, there's this weird breed because of a virus that's gone out in the world that has caused these people to become half human and half something. And their teeth, and they're, they're... They're insane, and they gnash their teeth. It's just weird. Don't watch it at night. It's just weird. Don't watch it, really. I think that's what gnashing of teeth is. Weeping. It's people that think they're supposed to go through the door of heaven and be with Jesus who are locked out. Note what causes the weeping and gnashing of teeth is when they see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the three top dog hitters in the lineup. The cosmic lineup in God's baseball team. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's who he gave his promises to. His eternal covenant to. Land, seed, and blessing. You're going to see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is, if you're a Jew, your forefathers. You're going to see them. And all the prophets, those prophets that you killed. Look down, Jesus says they're the ones that killed them. Because, uh, let's see, in verse 34, in the same chapter. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. Those prophets you killed, Jesus would be included, as well as John the Baptist. You're going to see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the prophets, including myself, in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves are thrown out. You are going to weep and gnash your teeth. Michael Bloomberg, the old uh, former uh, mayor of New York, someone asked him one time, are you going to heaven when you die? Or are you going to, are you certain you'll be in heaven? He said, Something along the lines of, I used to have the quote, something along the lines of, well, if I'm not there, I don't know who is going to be there. Or I better darn well be there, believing himself to be this great guy. Anyone who thinks they should be there is not going to be there. Anyone who knows that they will be there by God's grace, okay, a little different. But these are the ones that while banging on the door, are going to turn around, knowing that door is not going to open to them, and weep. I don't know if there's a group of people weeping, and there's another group of people gnashing their teeth. Probably yes, probably yes, and probably both. Weeping. I didn't get in. My eternity is certain, and it's not with Jesus. It's not with those Christians. My eternity is in hell. Perhaps then is where the gnashing of teeth goes, because it... it it brings out the, the image of rage. How dare you not allow me into your kingdom? How dare you? And the growling. 
No one's taking their, their lumps lightly by not getting in, especially those who think they should be in. And note that they will see. Yesterday I was watching a celebrity golf tournament to Lake Tahoe. I've never been to Lake Tahoe. My wife wants to go there, but after seeing some pictures yesterday at this golf tournament, I'm thinking, I need to go to Lake Tahoe. It's the, you see the lake, it's a golf tournament, and there's a sandy beach, and there's a beautiful green grass, and there's mountains around it, and there's all these boats in the way. It just looked so wonderful. And I'd just done the funeral of my beloved aunt, and I thought, she's in a place that's even so much, so much better than that. But I thought, that, that's where I want to be. If you think that's where you're going, and you get to the gate, and you've got your tickets, and the one says, sorry, can't come in. What? I paid for these tickets. I'm coming in. No, you're not. What? What do you do? You storm off. The way we gnash our teeth now is write a bad Google review. How dare they? I bought my tickets. No, your tickets were for next year or last year. You're not coming in. You will not partake of this beautiful event in this beautiful location. Go back to your shabby home. Folks, I say this. Jesus says this. Negotiate your peace deal today if you haven't. Make your life right with God whose wrath is upon you by receiving the peace treaty. Jesus, our Lord. Because in the place that's opposite of that door, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. You'll see others there, and you won't be there. I don't know if that's one of the, the, uh, the issues of, of hell. Will the, the inhabitants of hell see what they're missing for eternity? I don't know. It doesn't say that per se, but they see this. How do you know you're a child of Abraham? Turn over with me to Galatians, if you would. Luke. You go to John, Gospel of John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. Very important passage, and you can remember it because you remember John 3.16. Remember Galatians 3.16. Galatians 3.16. If Abraham's there, and God has given his covenant promises to Abraham, and I'm not from the loins of Abraham, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a Hebrew, and most of you are not either. How can I have what God has given Abraham? Glad you asked. Galatians 3.16. Paul says, Now promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. That, you, that is your seed, that is Christ. God spoke the promise to Christ. One, the main seed that was birthed from Abraham's loins. Remember, Abraham, his wife was barren. She later had a miraculous child, Isaac, at the age of 90. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob birthed the 12 tribes of Israel. They did become like the sand on the seashore. But one particular man was born through that lineage, and it was Jesus of Nazareth. Look down at verse 29 of Galatians 3. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants. Heirs according to promise. Heirs. If you belong to Christ, if you're in Christ, if you've received Christ, the peace treaty, you are part of Abraham's promise, an heir. Or if you will, an heiress. What God promised Abraham and his offspring, he promised Jesus and everyone who believes in Jesus. We get it too. Isn't that awesome? Verse 29, or at the end of verse 28, 
You'll see all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself being thrown out. That doesn't mean that they go to heaven and then are thrown out of heaven. It means that that kingdom of God that started when Jesus came, beginning in verses 18 and 21, that started small, they see Jesus, they see the kingdom of God starting. The kingdom of God is among you, Jesus said. It's saying that that little taste of the kingdom you had, you're thrown out of even that. You're done. You had no relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You didn't strive to enter. You kind of coasted in thinking you could be familiar with Jesus and be in. No. Verse 29, and they will come from the east and the west and from north and south. That means Gentiles. If you're a Jew and you don't think Gentiles are saved, not only are you going to see your patriarchs there and the prophets you killed and the Christ you killed, you're going to see Gentiles from all over the planet coming in that you thought were excluded. What will they be doing? And recline at the table of the kingdom of God. In the Near East, in this day, the greatest thing you could do, the greatest thing you participate in was a banquet. Go recline at the table. A big meal. How many of you, if you're like me, you like to get in and get out of lunch? Get in and get out of dinner. The quicker the better, especially if you're in a restaurant. I do not like sitting in a restaurant more than like three minutes. Once the chips are gone, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Once I'm done eating, unless I've got good company, I, I'm not, I can't stay long. I just, I'm ready to go. Eating is an, it's just a, a short event in my life. You? Maybe you're like that. Now, if you grew up in Mexico or you grew up in, in say, Italy, eating is more of a large event. It lasts a couple of hours, um, I'm told. Uh, in Romania, it lasts a little longer than, than what I was used to. You know, you, you get, you know, some bread and some soup, and it's good, and there's a delay, and you think, well, okay, I'm going up to my room. Uh-oh, no, that's, that's just the start. You got more coming. Oh, that's interesting. Then you got dessert. Then you got coffee. It's an event, a longer event. These banquets in Jesus' day are something you're going to recline at the table the kingdom of God. And isn't it interesting that when Jesus returns as a big banquet, that's what we're looking forward to? It's what we do when we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We're looking forward to that event where when Jesus returns, we have this great meal, we recline. I, I don't like to sit around at meal too long because I've got too many things to do. I'm really looking forward to being in heaven when I don't have anything else to do. Aren't you? I mean, one day I'm not going to have the burden of Harvest Bible Church, the great burden. But I'll tell you, Knowing so many people, knowing the spiritual issues, knowing the physical issues, knowing my own issues, my own family, people I love dying from my own family, people from the church, it's a burden to carry. I look forward to the day when, not when I don't get to be a, a pastor, but when the, when the burden of that is gone. I'm going to recline at the table. I was in Romania one time, and I was eating with some people. I didn't have anything to do that day. And I sat there with these folks, and we ate, and we had this great meal, and I wasn't in a hurry. And I so thoroughly enjoyed it. I was with Doug McCary, my buddy. We were there, and we were eating with Jan and Ani Tamich, and we were in, in uh, Brashov, and we were having this wonderful breakfast. Hey, you want this? You want that? Yeah. I didn't have to get up to go study. I didn't have a meeting. It was so delightful. It was just like one time in my life. I loved it, and I thought that, that was maybe a little taste to recline. I love the, the name. I love the word recline. I like the word, the little phrase, kick back. Kick back. I like to put my feet up. I like to sit. But I know when I sit, I'm going to have to get up. There's going to be a day <laughs> when I don't. Now, that doesn't mean that I think heaven's just this place where you lay around and do nothing. But these people are reclining. 
and the people on the outside are not part of it, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Which one will you be? At the table in the kingdom of God. And then he says that phrase in verse 30, Behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. That is, last ones, you Jews, that you think are the last people on the planet, those Gentiles, those prophets you killed in the past, you think they're the last ones? Oh, they're the first ones. You first ones that you think should be in first, you'll be last if you're there at all. So what does it mean to be saved? Let's be clear. The Bible says it is by faith we believe, in faith alone. But faith that is unaccompanied by works of repentance is not faith at all. Did I make that up? I'm just quoting the Bible. John the Baptist says in Luke chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, Repent. The axe is at the root of the tree. In other words, God's, God's wrath is coming. The axe is there. Repent and what? And bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I didn't make it up. Some people say, just believe. You believe you're in. In, always, don't give me anything else. Then why is there the rest of the Bible that tells us this? Strive. You leave here today, don't let your guard down. Strive. If you've entered that narrow door, strive to remain in the narrow door. You know people who supposedly came to Christ who later on said, I don't want anything to do with this. They never entered that narrow door. You thought they did. They were your little six-year-old child, but you let get baptized. Don't do that. Don't let your six-year-old get baptized. Don't let your 15-year-old get baptized. They're 15. They think they know everything, but they don't. And they haven't entered the real world where they can really own their faith yet. I'm not saying they're not saved, but give them time to gel. Leave them in the oven a little bit longer. Turn up that heat a little bit more. They need to cook a little bit longer. That's why we look at our eight-year-olds and go, wait a minute, they're 25 and they're not walking with Christ, but I know they were in Christ because when I asked them if they wanted to go to heaven when they were eight, and they said, yes, mommy. What child at eight years old doesn't want to say yes to heaven? Wait till they're 25, see what they say. It's about striving. They didn't lose their salvation. You didn't share the gospel well enough with them for them to understand salvation. It's not quick and easy. If it was, Jesus would have said so. It's an agony. It's a struggle because you've got to give up yourself and follow the Lord Jesus. Take up your cross daily. Deny yourself. You in? We meet for worship. We gather at a church to hold each other accountable, to strive in our striving because we fall from time to time, don't we? Like Christian did in the, in the Pilgrim's Progress, get off that path. We need each other. May we be there for one another. Bring each other back to the narrow road. Strive to enter it and continue to strive when you're in it. Let's pray. Lord, may the gospel of Jesus Christ pierce our souls. Might be free to us, but it wasn't free to you. May that overwhelming thought overwhelm us what you did and what it took to atone for sin. The life, not just an innocent man, but God in flesh to atone for my wickedness, our wickedness. May it be our honor to strive for you. May it be our, our privilege to continue to strive on this road. You've paved the way.
of salvation. May we rejoice continually. May we offer our lives as a living sacrifice, not to get, but because we got, because you gave it to us for free. May our lives rise up before you in what we say and do and how we repent. May we rise before you as a pleasing incense. May you be honored and worshiped ultimately. And Lord, may you wake up each day and look for us. For you seek those who would worship you in spirit and in truth. Seek us. May we be found seeking to worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you go today, my friends, strive to enter the narrow door, and may God bless you as you do. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 